Welcome to episode 186 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today I'm going to be talking to Colin McCarricker, who is the head of advanced transport for Bloomberg NEF. Every year, Bloomberg NEF brings out their uh, electric vehicle outlook, and they've uh, re uh, released 2023 not that long ago. And one of the things that Colin has told me in previous interviews is that it needs frequent updates because the industry is so disruptive, changing so rapidly that they it, forecasters can hardly keep up. So I'm really interested in talking to him about this. Welcome to the interview, Colin. Thanks, Mark. I'm good to be here with you. Let's go over some of the, the top line numbers. I mean, we're talking now uh, about, you know, by 2030, but particularly by 2040, we're going to see, at least you're forecasting, quite a large number of electric vehicles in the global fleet. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this anybody watching this is no surprise. This is going quite quickly around the world. Um, we do sort of two scenarios in this report. One of them is about what we would call our economic transition scenario. So sort of a market-led, technology-led uh, scenario. And yeah, there you're getting to um, quite high adoption levels, certainly by 2040, but even by 2030, in markets like Europe and uh, China, you're getting sort of 60-70% um, of sales being fully electric by that point. Now, once you get out to 20, once you get out further, um, then you need to get the rest of the world going. You need to get big emerging economies um, really accelerating. And that happens in the 2030s. So there's a bit of a gap there in over the next 10 years where some countries really leap ahead. And then you start to see the whole world move more in unison once you're into the, well into the 2030s. I mean, intuitively, that makes sense to me. But there's an interesting debate going on within the oil and gas community, because in energy media, we cover both the oil and gas and the sort of clean energy economy in which EVs fit. And the oil and gas folks argue that, yes, EVs are going to uh, eat market share, and they debate how rapidly, but nevertheless, they, they're conceding market share to electricity over time. But they argue that that's primarily going to take place in China, Europe, uh, to a lesser extent, a little, or let's say a little slower in North America. But they expect oil demand to continue to rise in the emerging economies, especially the, the middle income economies. And they say that will basically uh, will that'll be the, the driver behind actually growing oil demand over time out to at least uh, 2040. What's your take on that? Yeah, I don't really agree. So I do think the places like China and Europe are going to lead it. Um, but one of the things that you find when you look at emerging economies is that they are very price sensitive, right? There's not a lot of spare money in the system. People are buying some of the, the cheaper vehicles that are out there. And that price sensitivity works against electric vehicles, certainly for the next few years. But we do expect batteries to continue to get better and cheaper. And then eventually you get to this point where EVs are the cheapest option in most, if not all, segments. Um, and then that price parity start or that that price sensitivity starts to mean those countries become very fast adopters because again, they're the ones who are buying the lowest cost vehicles. And if EVs can get there, then that's what they will predominantly buy. Now there's still a lot of things that have to happen there around charging infrastructure, around grid upgrades and all sorts of other components. But just generally, I think this idea that it's only going to stay in wealthy con economies is is probably wrong. Where if you look at the numbers right now for places like Thailand, Indonesia, India, EV sales are going up really quickly in those big emerging economies. So when we put all that together, um, coupled with, again, some of the stuff in China where you're already at 30 odd percent of new vehicle sales are electric, we actually see global 
transport oil demand peaking in 2027. Um, so both road transport and then what happens in road transport is enough to offset shipping and aviation. So transport oil demand peaks in 2027, broader oil demand peaking in our outlook in, in 2029. But again, that's it's worth noting that that's in the economic transition scenario. If you believe in a world where policymakers are going to take their long-term climate targets seriously, try to get to net zero by 2050, then that would have to come down even sooner and come down faster. So I don't think it drops off a cliff. Oil demand generally, when we model it, what happens is you're sort of in this long plateau period in the 2020s, and then it takes a while before it really starts to drop because fleet turnover does take a long time. You can turn over new sales of vehicles quite quickly, but there's this embodied fleet of 1.3 billion vehicles that takes a while to turn around. But the thing is with that, once you turn it around, then there's really no going back. This is like a big tanker you're steering, right? Once you turn it, it's going to get very hard to, to, to ever see that return to growth. So in our outlook for road transport, that happens around 2027. Yeah, again, intuitively, that makes perfect sense to me because you know we know that once technologies get past their inflection point, new technologies, and they become competitive in the marketplace, then we get exponential growth, like the hockey stick growth, which is ex what we're seeing. In a way, I mean, the... the um, uh, e electric transportation technology, and we don't mean just passenger trucks and cars. We're talking about medium duty, heavy duty buses, uh, you know, light rail. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, other uh, types of vehicles that fit under transportation uh, that are being electrified. But what I find interesting about this is is that out of the four general categories, when energy transition analysts talk about uh, the energy transition there's you know there's power and there's transportation there's buildings and there's industry and yep. of the, those four the two that are being disrupted by really uh, much more efficient low cost technology are power and transportation so now you've got the industry the auto industry that or the you know the transportation making industry completely committed to electric there, I, I think it's fair to say that particularly on passenger cars and trucks, SUVs, that the industry is all in. And if you're like Toyota, then you're kind of, you know, you're a laggard and recognized as such. And then on the other side, on the power sector, like if you're if you're in Latin America, say, you know, Brazil or one of those other countries. And and so now you're looking at, you know, like a five thousand dollar Chinese electric vehicle or ten thousand dollar Chinese electric vehicle. Now you need to fuel it. Well, now you've got access to pan, uh, you know, cheap solar panels and microgrids and all sorts of other technology. You don't have to wait for the power grid to be upgraded in your neighborhood if you really want to go there. So it seems like from a technology point of view, the conditions are absolutely right in these other economies, these emerging economies, to do what they did in telecommunications, which is skip the old technology and go right to the cheaper, better, newer stuff. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple interesting things there. One is that um. As you said, it's not just passenger cars. So actually, some of the segments that are going the fastest toward electric are two and three wheeled vehicles, which actually make up a pretty big portion of the transport mix in emerging in big emerging economies, particularly in South Asia and Southeast Asia. So actually, the one that's furthest along is three wheeled vehicles. So rickshaws and tuk-tuks, those are going actually pretty quickly electric. And in our forecast, they're, they're more than on track for the net zero scenario. And the two wheeled vehicles are not far off. Another interesting thing that we're noting there is we're seeing a rise on the two-wheeled vehicles of battery swapping. So we're a bit skeptical on battery swapping for cars, but for two-wheeled vehicles, it actually works quite well. You have companies like Gogoro in, in Taiwan that are expanding elsewhere, and you can basically just set up a swappable bank of batteries where you, as an owner of one of these vehicles, 
Um, you sign up for a subscription, those are scattered around the city. You just go in, swap in and out. It takes less time than it would to refill refill a gasoline uh, station vehicle and also our gasoline powered vehicle. And also you can decouple that a bit from the grid connection because you could charge those batteries in an area where there is spare grid capacity, then move them to wherever it makes most sense to distribute them. So I think there are still some challenges around um, grids in emerging economies. But I will say this is that EVs don't add that much to power demand. Um, certainly, they they do once you get out to 2050 and 2060 and 2070. But really, it, when we look out to 2030, you're talking two, three, four percent to power demand. That's not a huge amount. And actually, in advanced economies, in Western economies, that's actually usually just what's keeping the power total power demand from shrinking because you have things like better efficiency you have some offshoring of industry in some cases um so it, it's not really a near-term problem it's more of a longer term thing you have to think about and you have to think about the peak demand from these vehicles but as you said there's a lot going on in the power sector that helps give us optimism that that's a place that's going to continue to be able to deliver um, on both the capacity um and just deliver generally deliver the innovation need to solve some of these business problem issues. Uh, there was an interesting line in the executive summary of the report that really caught my attention because this is an issue that uh, I, bit of a hobby horse of mine, uh, and that is the role of policy versus technology in an energy transition. And it my take on this is always that you know in this one in particular, policy primed the pump. You know, there's no question that, yeah. you know, solar panels and, uh, uh, you know, in Germany, uh, feed-in tariffs and and then subsidies for manufacturers like Tesla really primed the pump on the, on this industry. But then you get to that inflection point and, and the technology has now become uh, low cost, it's become more efficient, it's become better and competitive in the marketplace. And then it becomes the technology driving it and really policy dictates, you know, how fast it's going to go. Uh, and and it seems like we've reached that point. Uh, and so the, your point about your argument about the, you know, whether we get to net zero or not, are we serious about that? Then that becomes only a question of, you know, when EVs are going to push internal combustion engine vehicles out of the marketplace, not if, but but when. Is that a fair take? Yeah, I think that's fair. And and I think certainly, as you said, the, the automakers are very much on board with that vision, though the timing does vary between them. Um, I think most of them recognize that combustion cars days are, are numbered, though though sometimes I'm still surprised that, that that's not a, a more mainstream view. Um, but I, again, if you look at what is stated is one thing, but then if you look at where automakers are putting their investment, I, I work with all the major auto companies I work with their planning departments. I talk to them and, and a lot of them say, I'm not working on any new, because they're working on models that'll launch in 2030. And they'll say openly, I'm not working on any combustion models right now. Everything I'm working on for 2030 afterwards is electric and electric platforms. So we sort of see that quite clearly. Um, but of course, then there's a supplier base and there's an industrial base that they may not want to make that statement fully public, or they may have a different take on what the optimal time to message that is. But just generally, I think that's that's clear that that's where we're going. I do think this question, though, of the net zero part of it and the timing of it, that's where it gets a bit more um, tense, because when you do the modeling, a vehicle stays on the road globally maybe 15 years. Sometimes they migrate from country to country as they get older. So they might in, in Western Europe, they might migrate to Eastern Europe or further afield after that as they age. But if you look at it globally, it's probably around 15 years. 
just kind of working that back, if you say, look, we want to get to net zero emissions by 2050, um, that's 2035. That's when you have to stop selling them. Now, you could say there's going to be a huge retirement program or scrappage program in the late 2040s, but that's kind of kicking the can down the road. If you do want to stay on track for the net zero discussions that are out there, and you can be skeptical of those, and that's a perfectly reasonable position to take, but you kind of have to say, look, it, it might not be exactly 2035, maybe it's 2036 or 2037, but it's kind of 10 to 15 years from now, you have to stop selling combustion cars if you want to stay on track for that. And I often get asked, what do I actually think happens? We have this economic transition scenario, we have this net zero scenario, and, and in the economic transition scenario, we assume no new policies are implemented. So what I usually say to that is that I think it's going to be somewhere in between the two. I don't think we're going to get to the net zero scenario, at least not from what I'm seeing right now. But I think we're going to get further and faster than the current trajectory suggests, because everything we see says that, look, governments are taking this more seriously. They are implementing more policy. Things like the, the U.S. Biden administration tightening fuel economy targets from 2027 onwards. That's going to be a big boost. I don't see that many policy levers pushing in the other way, at least not yet. So I think in terms of as modelers, we try and get away from this statements about what we think will happen. But if you pushed me, I say, I think it lands somewhere between those two scenarios that we outlined. Fair enough. There, there's an issue going on my um, on my social media channels uh, that I find very interesting. And that's Toyota's announcement that it's going to move. It's going to have a, uh, a solid state battery with like over a thousand kilometers of range and recharge in 10 minutes. And that that's that it's fascinating because a Toyota has been a laggard on the switch to, to EVs. And so I wonder what your take is on their corporate strategy. You know, is it to say, okay, look, we'll, we'll hang back a little bit here. We won't be the Tesla, but boy, when we get into it in a big way, we're coming in with superior technology and then we'll be able to leap ahead and avoid a lot of the mistakes and costs that, that, you know, innovators like, like Tesla have had to go through. Um, but your report makes a, a, a special note, as it always does, about changing battery technology, how many chemistries, new chemistries are coming in, mm -hmm. the, the significant improvements in, in range and so on. So what's your take on the Toyota issue? Yeah, so the first thing I'll just say is that Toyota is, has been a very successful company over, over many years and has moved with several industry trends. And they're not a group that I would count out of, of anything yet. Um, they really revolutionized the way vehicles are manufactured and, and deserve a lot of credit for that. Having said that, they have left themselves quite a hill to climb. So the EV share of their vehicle sales so far this year is somewhere around 0.2%, um, a tiny amount. Um, they've had a bunch of recalls and problems with the, the few purely electric vehicles they have launched, uh, and they haven't supplied that many of the plug-in hybrid models that they that they uh, that they have launched. So they're just numbers are a little bit limited in Canada. I think it's about a year's wait time to buy a Rav Four Prime if you want to buy one. So that gives you an idea of the supply. So they've left themselves a real hill to climb, and it's really starting to bite. So I, I think they underestimated how fast, in particular, the China market was going to grow. So the Chinese market, vehicle market overall, is what has really uh, put a huge amount of rocket fuel into the the financials of a lot of Western and, and Japanese car makers over the last decade, because the Chinese car market has grown, grown so quickly. It's been one of the biggest, if not the biggest source of growth over the last decade and, and even beyond that. And it is now a market where a third of the cars sold are electric cars. And so what you can see right now is that all of the Western and international automakers are getting squeezed out because they didn't anticipate how fast China was going to go to electric. 
we've been trying to say this for quite some time and trying to say that this was happening. Um, but what you can start to see now is that those market shares are dropping really fast, whether that's Volkswagen or Honda or Mitsubishi or Nissan. Um, and what's rising in its place are two companies uh, or two groups, really, the Chinese pure play automakers who are focusing really on electric. So those are groups like BYD and Tesla um, and much more so the BYD than Tesla. But I think that really highlights this, how competitive this game is. And, and a lot of these automakers have sort of missed a turn. The Chinese market has gone faster than they thought. They're now losing market share in the biggest auto market in the world. I don't see that immediately reversing. There's still a lot to play for in the other markets. And you'll start to see a battle shaping up in, say, Southeast Asia between Chinese uh, automakers trying to export EVs to there and the incumbents, which are the Japanese automakers trying to defend market share. The North America market's still relatively up for grabs because it's been slower so far on EV adoption. But I do think it, it's getting tense now. We're, we're, this isn't hypothetical anymore. Two years ago, you sort of said, okay, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But now you can definite, definitively say these companies have missed a turn and they are losing market share. What about the uh, the solid state battery issue? Is is do you what do you put any credence in Toyota's claims? Uh, you know, for their solid state battery. Yeah, battery claims you always have to be a bit careful with because there's a lot of claims of of dramatic advances. We are generally seeing a lot more um, commercialization work going on on solid state batteries right now. So we did a deep dive in that in the EV outlook this year. And we do see several groups um, looking like they're going to be able to commercialize in the next three, four, five years. The thing with solid state batteries is there's a lot of range in what you can call a solid state battery. So the gold standard is sort of an all solid state battery where the electrolyte is completely solid. What you're going to see over the next few years is more and more companies calling something a solid state battery that maybe it's 15% um, of the of the electrolyte that's that's solid or 20% and the rest is still a liquid electrolyte or some ratio in there in between. And that's a bit hard to tell right now exactly where they sit and where others sit. Um, in general, I would say the groups that are more likely to make breakthroughs and really commercialize an all solid state uh, lithium ion battery are probably the groups more like CATL uh, who are genuinely leading both volume and, and a lot of the innovation that's happening um, and are already pushing into that direction a bit more. So I would say my hunch is that the real breakthroughs come from the real battery leaders today and not so much out of left field. But Toyota does have a bunch of partnerships, including including with groups like Panasonic that could still manage to make, uh, make that happen. So we're kind of in wait and see mode on that. The one thing is, is that probably, I think even according to their own words, doesn't come until 2027 we're going to have some pretty high EV shares in the world by 2027. So if you're waiting for that, um, it might be, it might feel like a bit of a long wait. Quick wrap up uh, before we, we end our uh, conversation, Colin, um, give us one startling trend, big trend, interesting trend from the, your report that we should keep an eye on over the next year. So, the one that we sort of touched on at the beginning that I still think is pretty fascinating is that internal combustion engine sales peaked in 2017. And in our view, there's no real getting back to that 2017 peak. Uh, that was a pre-pandemic peak. Um, and now, even with a recovery in overall vehicle sales, internal combustion engine vehicle sales are still 20% off that peak. Um, so you see the market overall coming back from the COVID days, but all the growth is on the electric side. And so that means that segment is in terminal decline and markets have a habit of chasing growth 
rather than absolute market share. So they go after the growing thing rather than the thing that has the highest, highest unit numbers. And so one of the things we're thinking about a lot is the degree to which that causes a cascade where you stop investing in something because you're chasing growth and then you that becomes a less and less attractive technology as you do that. And that creates this snowball. It's very hard to model that because it's hard to know exactly the shape that that takes. But I do think it's something to watch. And yeah, internal combustion engine vehicle sales this year will be 20% off their peak. In 2025 or 2026, we think they'll be 40% off their peak. No route back in terminal decline at this point. Colin, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Markham. Good to speak to you.